we are back. Welcome back to yet another Behind the Lens. I am Debbie Lynn Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can find my reviews and interviews in print and online around the globe, locally in California, East Coast, down South, Europe, and even South Africa. But every Monday, you can find me right here live on Adrenaline Radio and, adv and Advice Radio with Behind the Lens where we take you behind the lens and below the line. Uh, for all of our regular listeners, I think after last week, you uh, you got a really good taste of that with our very special in-studio guest, Academy Award nominee, Scott Hecker, uh, with the Formosa Group. Uh, and yes, Scott, for those of you that have emailed and asked this week, yes, Scott will be back again. We're going to get that set up. Uh, plus, we'll also have some other of the artisans uh, and masters of sound from Formosa Group in the coming months. So stay tuned for that. And our delightful Theo Taplitz. See him in Little Men in theaters now. It's expanding wider each week. Uh, and you can also see some of Theo Theo's own films. Uh, go on to Vimeo and just uh, type his name in and a collection of his, sh his own award-winning short films will pop up for you. Uh, but put Theo's name on the radar because he's a young man who's going to be around for a long time to come. And I'm just so thrilled uh, to know him. And it, we were lucky enough to get him as a guest last week uh, with Scott here to have the, the melding of the two generations. So, but this week, you know, variety is the spice of life. And this week we've got some great variety because we've got Emmy nominees this week. Very excited to have Laura Zak and Sydney Freeland. Laura Zak is the executive producer, creator, writer, and one of the stars of the short form series, Her Story. Uh, Sydney Freeland is the director of the six episode series. And yes, it has garnered an Emmy nomination for Outstanding Short Form Drama or Comedy Series. Very excited to have these ladies with us. I saw the Her Story a series uh, back before L.A. Film Festival. It debuted at LAFF, and it was one of my must-see festival picks. Absolutely amazing. Very good storytelling. Uh, revolves around the LGBT community, uh, but it's more about people as opposed to labels. And everybody interacts the way all of us interact, and it's just fabulous, fabulous series. Uh, so... I'm looking forward to speaking with Laura and Sydney today. Uh, before Laura and Sydney, though, we're going to have Michael Snyder, one of my colleagues, uh, press colleagues, but he is also a producer and writer in his own right. And he has his short film, The Hilarious Barry and Rose Show, that has a comedic sensibility that is mirrors Michael's to a T. Uh, Michael will be joining us at, at about the 15-minute mark to talk about Barry and Roe, which everyone can go see at Holly Shorts in Los Angeles this week. And then I understand a few more festivals have been added to the lineup. So we'll get Michael to talk about that. But before we get there, big, 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 busy interview week for me. Uh, most notably, Ben-Hur. You've been hearing me and... Films director Timur Bekmanbetov talking about the film for over, well over a year now. 
Uh, and finally, the film is done. It will be in theaters this Friday. I'm embargoed from telling you what I think of it until 8 o'clock Wednesday morning. But I am able to share excerpts of interviews from this weekend's press day. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. Yes, all about the chariot race. It's all about the chariot race, people. But first, Brian. Brian, where are you? I am right here. He's sleeping on the job, man. No, I just had to make sure that I wasn't louder than you. Oh, well, that's all right. On the board. No, it's not all right, because this is your program, and I think you brought me along. But I share. You do, you do. And and behind the scenes, Debbie shares everything from the bottle water that she's drinking right now to everything else in her life. But That explains why there was only one bottle of water left when I got here today. Yeah. Well, I brought my water this time. No, that's okay. I brought my own water <laughs> from home as I was leaving. But, you know, this is, I know, we're, we're getting to, the very, to your very special segment here. But in, in terms of that very special segment, we had some sad news this weekend. Oh, yes. I, didn't even, oh, I can't believe I forgot. Yeah. We lost Kenny Baker. Yeah. R2-D2. And I think uh, Mark Hamill had the, the best line or tribute to him was saying, you know, he enjoyed his enthusiasm and his optimism. And he was the joy that he was looking for. Was the way he he uh, closed Aww. out that tweet, and it did bring a little little swelling to the eyes. Even thinking about it right now, yeah. Mark Hamill definitely working alongside him. Yeah, and Ke- and Kenny was R was R two D two in six films. Yeah, yeah, he was. Except the the last one, yeah, there. Yeah, the first the first six, the initial the initial trilogy, the initial three, the pro- the predecessor three. Uh, but then he he missed out on on the newest one. Yeah. So very sad to to have woken up to that news. Yeah, that that did not make my day. No, no. But I mean, staying within the the terms of Star Wars, on a more positive note, you know, obviously rest in peace to R two D two, not the character, but the person who portrayed mm-hmm. him. Uh, we have four hundred and eighty six days, twelve hours, fifty three minutes to go until Star Wars Episode Eight comes out. Oh. <sighs> And Rogue One, I mean, which the trailer that just dropped last week, I don't think we got to, sp- to speak about we it. We did not. So talk about the Rogue One trailer. It showed a lot more of, of the of the stormtroopers, the new ones. I mean, they're, they're not new in the sense of the story, but they're the shock troopers. Mm-hmm. Those guys are cool with the black outfit. Showed uh, the general who's supposed, who looks like it's going to be the main villain. Okay. Uh, right next to the most evilest person in all of the galaxy in that <gasps> time period. Darth Vader made an appearance, you know, and I was excited because they had said that he was going to be in the film. And I thought maybe I joked around, it was just going to be him walking in the background somewhere really quickly. And I was going to be it. And I was going to be content and really excited about that. But no, it seems like he's going to be, a, 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 it, if not a pivotal, a big part of it. A major player. Oh, yeah. I mean, they got they have somebody I don't know who, but they have somebody in the costume. And it was just a silhouette of his of his helmet. I think he turns around for a second and the trailer cuts back to black. But you hear the iconic breathing. And you see the character, even if it's just from the backside, it's perfect. It's awesome. And that Rogue One comes out in 122 days. So that is fa- that is beyond fathomable. So I just I came to do the show, and I'm going right back to the movie theater to save my place in line. Really? Well, next. you know, and I really appreciate that. No, yeah, and just for you. And, well, well, thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. If anybody wants to donate to my GoFundMe page <laughs> for sleeping outside a movie theater, please go ahead and look it up. 
Which theater will you be sleeping out of for Ro- for uh, Rogue One? Well, you know, I'm, obviously I'm just joking, around, but I'm gonna go watch it uh, midnight screening Thursday. I'm gonna try to get to the, even some of the local ones. At this point, like I'm very picky about my movie theaters. Mm-hmm. I like seats that recline. But if if it's for Rogue One, I'm going to whatever theater is not sold out. Well, then as soon as tickets go on sale, start looking. Oh yeah, yeah, because I I that's what happened with Episode Eight. I had to watch it about three days after it came out because everything was just sold out. But this one I'm gonna be on the on the on the start. It's gonna be the first day I'm gonna I'm gonna get my tickets. So I'm not no need to sleep outside anymore, people. If you sleep outside during Black Friday too, you're you're uh, wasting <laughs> your time because you can just get those deals online. <laughs> just letting you know that. In case you didn't. And of course people can hear more from Brian later on today if you tune in at what, five o'clock? At five PM I have my own podcast, nothing in particular podcast show. Uh, we'll be talking a little bit more about Rogue One as well as the box office and uh well, you know, I have to ask you about your show. Uh, last week after we finished Behind the Lens, uh, Brian, was he started a poll, a pizza poll. Oh, yes, so, we did. So, you know, it was not part of Behind the Lens, but he got all of us involved in this pizza poll. Yes, I asked Scott and company. So I am the designated person to find out what were the results. I actually started the poll within the room with you guys. Yeah. Because I had been on Facebook after the program was done, and I saw the hatred for pineapple pizza, the beautiful creation that is pineapple pizza. <laughs> and... Um, the entire room struck me down. Everybody that was behind the lens, so to speak, behind the program was like, well, you're dumb (laughs) for liking pineapple pizza. But uh, during that day, the survey said out of 36 people, about 16 of them enjoyed pineapple pizza, if I remember correctly. And then another, what adds to, yeah, and then 10 or 20, whatever adds to 36. Pineapple won that week, but in, in, in this week, it's neck to neck. I mean, the the poll is still open, but okay. I pulled about 100 people. A lot of them at Disneyland, a lot of them where I went. And I'm going to let you know right now, it looks like it's going to be a tie. And, and, and that's not even a spoiler. I mean, it's it's fun. It's 50-50. It's wow. honestly 50-50. If somebody, I, one more person votes either or before the end of the day, before the podcast it goes could out sw- It could sway the... It, it'll swing to wherever it goes. It's as exciting as the presidential election. Oh, yeah. It's coming down the wire. I don't know why people aren't covering it, but... It, it's, I'm getting to the bottom of it. I'll, I'll tell you. But, you know, what I want to know is what is, your, what is your age demographic? Because all of us that don't like it, we were all, we're in the upper age bracket. Yeah. The 40 and over. I actually don't keep a track of age because pizza's timeless. Well, this is true. So it doesn't matter how old you are. You enjoy a slice of pizza. Everybody enjoys pizza. So this is true. I don't age discriminate. So everybody who got polled, I didn't ask them their age. And I'm not even assuming what, how old they are. Everybody loves pizza. So that's how my... But I did ask... Uh, what's funny is a lot of the a lot of the people would pick the pineapple off. There's very little little number of people who absolutely hate the pizza. Me. Yeah, you like you probably <laughs> wouldn't pick it off. You would just not eat it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So a lot of people would pick it off, but most of the people would just bypass even the picking off portion of it. So thank you for asking. I mean, we're talking about the hard things on my podcast. We 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 get to today's issues. I I, I know you do. I know you do. You know, I like to give a plug where a plug is required. Oh, thank you, thank you. You know, and we might as well give another plug for In the Deep. We didn't get to talk about In the Deep last week. No, which on the back cover has something very interesting. I, it does. It does. I was very excited to find out that that Weinstein and Anchor Bay put uh, my poll quote on the box cover. So dive in. The water's warm and bloody. It is a shark movie. And what do you expect from movie Shark to Blur? Yeah. But covering a shark movie. Uh, it's quite, quite good. Yeah, definitely check that out. Yeah, and like I said, it has a pool quote 
or like Debbie said, there's a pull quote of Debbie's, uh, you know, what she said about the film, which I don't remember word for word what it was, but it was it was nice. Dive in. The water's to, warm and bloody. Compared to the things she tells me after the program. Oh, stop. No, it's actually, uh, you know, so many people were raving about The Shallows a couple months ago. I had the privilege of seeing In the Deep long before The Shallows came out. And there is no real comparison. While well, the cinematography of The Shallows is beautiful, beautiful. Uh, in the Deep, the story, the tension... You know, because it's shot 47 meters down underwater. And that always adds a whole other element uh, as you're trapped with your air running out and you can hear the aerator. The sound design is, plays a big part. Um, it is really exceedingly well done. And so I can't recommend it enough. It is on VOD, digital, and DVD and Blu-ray. So, in the deep. But... Let us move on to, before, before Michael Snyder calls in, let us move on to the, a film that I've been waiting two years to, to really delve into, and that is Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur, many of you, when you think of Ben-Hur, you think of Charlton Heston, The Chariot Race. You may or may not have seen the film. Uh, it is based on an 1880 novel by Lou Wallace, uh, the book of which is predicated upon uh, the Bible, the Gospels, and the New Testament. And it is one of the cornerstones for most Christians that they have read. So it should come as no surprise to anybody that the producers of, two of the producers of Ben-Hur, the new one, are Roma Downey and Mark Burnett. Um, there have been many incarnations of Ben-Hur. There was a 1907 silent that was, it was a 15-minute short. And it starred William S. Hart as Masala and Herman Rutger as Ben-Hur. For those of you that don't know the story, depending on which version you're looking at, um, Masala and Ben-Hur are either brothers or they're old friends. In this new version, which is written by John Ridley and Keith R. Clark, um, they are... Masala is the adopted brother into the Hur family, so he and Judah Ben-Hur grow up together as brothers. Um, obviously, the chariot scene is what everybody thinks about. Uh, the chariot scene has been in every single one of the Ben-Hur incarnations, the most famous of which, of course, actually the 1925 version, the chariot scene was shot in Culver City, in the Culver Studios, on the back lot, which many people do not know. Uh, but there were location shootings in Rome. Of course, the 1959 version, directed by William Wyler, starring Charlton Heston and Stephen Boyd, it was shot in Cinecita Studios in Italy, which is where this Ben-Hur was also shot, as well as in Matera, a very, very historical region of Italy. So I had a chance to... Now, we all know the stories of... All the classic film fans know the stories of the 1959 version and the legendary stuntman, Yakima Knut. Yakima spent two years designing, plotting out and designing the spina, the course, the track in the circus that the chariot race takes place in. He spent time training and working with Heston and Boyd and the other riders but also mapping it out as to how it could be executed as safely as possible. Uh, his son actually doubled Charlton Heston in for portions of the chariot race. 
now, fast forward to the present, Timur Bekmanitov, uh, the and second unit director Phil Nielsen, and Horsemaster stunt coordinator Steve Dent, they didn't have two years. They also didn't have to build a track that was three times regular size in order to get the lensing and the action that William Wyler wanted for the film. Thanks to cameras we have now, GoPros, it makes it a lot easier. But it's still dangerous, it's still, re- still action-packed, and if you've seen any of the trailers, you've seen much of that action. And yes, it is Jack Houston and Toby Kebbell doing their own chariot racing. So this weekend, I got to talk to them about the chariot race and training. So let's hear first what Jack had to say about the chariot race. <laughs> a lot of training, exactly. You know it now. It was, um, it was insane. It was amazing. We were very aware that, you know, even people who haven't seen Ben-Hur can sometimes identify that it's the movie that has the amazing chariot race in. You know, it's like whether you've seen it or not, that's it. And today for a modern audience who is so, I'd say, bogged down almost by so much effects and so much CGI, what Timor, a wonderful director, did was he's quite an effects-driven director in the past, has been. He said, you know what, I'm going to trick them all. Let's do it. Let's really do everything for real. We had no green screen or blue screen in that arena. Everything, it was built to scale. And every time you see us with those horses, that was us with those horses, which was a rigorous training like sort of regime, which me and Toby both had to go through for months before we actually started filming. But it was all the better for it because, you know, you really want the audience to go with you on this ride. And the way you want to do that is if they are feeling everything you're feeling. And if we were in a studio or faking any of that, I think it would have read instantly. And, you know, the difference of actually being with those horses, which is incomparable to anything I've ever done, it was a very special, amazingly sort of, almost like a meditation when you were on those horses because it is very dangerous and you have to be very aware of what you're doing because it's not just you you have to worry about you've got you know another 28 horses running around with you and um chariots which weigh uh, like over i think 1200 pounds some insane amount they're very dangerous but um you only focus on the job at hand so for those brief moments you are completely immersed within the race and within the chariot scene so it's that lovely thing where your brain isn't telling you oh you should have done this better you should have done that you're completely focused and it's um you know we 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 shot for six weeks with first unit five weeks with second unit close to three months just the chariot race which they managed to take down to 10 12 minutes of film so you can imagine how much went into it it's uh, yeah it's uh, crazy so and well, while we're, we're waiting for Michael to call, wherever Michael Snyder may be with the Barry and Rose show, let's move on here a little bit more about Ben-Hur from Toby Kebble, who gets down and dirty into describing the actual training and working with horses and chariots. Yeah, you know, Toby, I want to ask you about the all-important chariot race. You're no stranger to horses. Mm-hmm. You also didn't have the two years that Yakima Knut had in the 1959 True version. So what was your training? First, the training regimen, like, to learn chariot driving, but then also the shooting of it. Because in this one, I know that Timur was very excited about this. Every conversation we've had for two years was 
ended up as the chariot thing. He was happy with all the horses. Yeah. But we're not shooting in 70 millimeter Panavision. It's narrowed down, which requires a lot more setups, a lot more shooting. Can you walk us through what the whole experience from training to filming of that was like? Yeah, so training began, it was one month before shooting, so we were there uh, three weeks before everyone else, yeah. And so, you know, there was a whole process of, the way you learn the chariot was, you learn one horse, you learn two horses, and then you learn four horses. And that is because your first horse is the horse you're gonna keep on your outside right flank, because we're running the spinner to the left. Now, it was, a, it was an actual scale spinner, and in the 59, they made a triple size. So they could have time and space to get these shots of wheels clashing or them whipping each other. We didn't have that time because we had the advancement of technology, which is a light camera. So we had cameras on the chariots. We had GoPros in soccer balls on the thing, so you could see under the, the horse's hooves. We had all this light technology, and that allowed to do it at full speed. We don't ever have to speed up the film. So no one's having to do this and looking at, you know, we don't have to do that. And it's not because they couldn't do it. It's just the technology wasn't there. The, the camera's capability wasn't there. So we knew we were going to be doing this full speed. That was the reason I signed up for the job was Timo said, we are doing this, it's not CGI. There's no technology can give me four horse characters for each of the eight chariots. It's just, it's too much work. So we're going to do it for real. And the reason you learn one horse, two, twofold. First thing is, if you stamp on the brakes that we had, which were disc brakes, the chariot hops, it just is, it's a physics thing. And at the front we have a pole that's attaching the horse to the, the chariot. If that pole touches the ground, we're tumbled over. So you can't stamp on your brake. So really you have to learn this horse, and this horse learns your voice. He's on your outside right because he's your smartest. So he's going to be running the full race with you. If we do seven laps, he's running all seven laps. He's going to hear your voice over eight other voices calling and yipping and woeing. And then you've got two bulls. They're just going to run. They're runners. They're just runners. They're runners. They're sheep. They'll follow whatever George or Motsi does. Now, Motsi is your inside horse, and he's the laziest horse you've ever had in your life. And the reason he's lazy is my strength is nothing compared to one horse. So compared to four, forget about it. There's no point. So I have Motsi to break stride. Now, Motsi doesn't want to run. So even on the long straight, he's still sort of doing this. <laughs> so he breaks stride, the two sheep follow him. Now it's me and three horses versus George. And George is listening to my voice. So suddenly I've got a symbiotic relationship and I can actually leave these horses thinking I'm in charge. <laughs> Which is not true at all. Who was but better with the Who was better? Yeah, you and Jack. Masala. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I saw it. I was there every day. You were incredible. Thank you, awesome. yeah. no, Jack was awesome, but it was yeah. just different. Yeah, it's a different thing. It's, he had a different approach. He worked different with horses. For Toby, you could see it was very important that he connected with his four horses. That's the reason why you did so much training, and, and it was just it was awesome. Thank you. It was incredible seeing these guys, and they did it for real. Yeah, we, had a, we had a great day doing it for Peter. Yes. He was there watching the race, so we all just ran the race. They just did it again and again and again, just for me. <laughs> it was great. It was our pressure on us. <laughs> no. Just like, oh, no! We're all like waving at me. Like, ah, but no. I could see when you saw Jack and you standing with those, yeah. you gotta be strong. Yeah, you have to oh. hold those horses. Because you they can go. I mean, we had it was eight we seconds from the gate yeah. to the first corner. Eight seconds, it's quick. It's yeah. 
nearly 46 miles an hour. And all that raucous laughter in there and the voice you, male voice you heard jump in there. That is one of Toby's co-stars. Toby, of course, plays Masala. Jack Houston plays Judah Ben-Hur. But that is Pilu Asbeck. Uh, and he plays Pontius Pilate. I am lucky enough to have known Pilu for a couple of years. Um, you may know him best, those of you who know the work of Tobias Lindholm, who have seen a hijacking or a war. That is, and that is Pilu. And this is Pilu's first American film, first English film. So he's very excited about it um, and participated in the entire filming process, even when he was not filming. Uh, and as you can hear, the boys actually ran chariot races just for him. So it was a good time had by all with chariot races. And I see Brian with the phone and... Do we know what we're doing? Uh, we're, I'm getting all kinds. I'm getting emails so that we're changing up talent today. Uh, instead for her story, instead of director Sydney Freeland, we're going to have the producer Kate Fisher, who is the one who will bring the Emmy home for the show. Um, now, who do we? Oh no. Okay. I'm. I'm. I'm Let's yeah. uh, take a short commercial break, and I'll. Uh... Oh, we need a break so Brian can tell me something. Yes, okay, we'll be right back. Hi, this is Terry Crews, actor, former football player, game show host, father of five, and all-around big dude. I'm also an expert on drama. I know all kinds of drama. There's the good kind that comes with having a house full of kids. There's the bad kind, like season-ending injuries. There's the necessary kind, like having an agent in Hollywood. And there's silly drama, like the drama around my percolating pectorals. And then there's the drama you can skip. Skip the drama that comes with not having your high school diploma or equivalency. Find free adult education classes near you and finish your high school diploma. Visit finishyourdiploma.org. Or text DIPLOMA to 97779. Message and data rates may apply. Reply STOP to opt out. That's DIPLOMA to 97779. And leave the drama to actors like me. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ed Council. Hey, I'm Brian. And this is DJ Harris. And we are the hosts of the Nothing In Particular podcast show. Live almost every Monday at 5 p.m. Where we discuss comic books, video games, movies, box office reviews, anything in the news, you name it. It's Nothing In Particular. And sometimes we'll convince somebody to come in studio with us. And those people include artists, writers, directors, musicians, social workers, you name it. So that's almost every Monday at 5 p.m. Nothing, Nothing In, in particular, particular podcast show. No, I'm not doing that. Yeah, come no, on. I told you one no, of it's, it's awesome. I've got to find another way to end this commercial. Yeah, well, this is perfect. And we are back. Now, Brian, who do I have? Who do I have on the line? We have Kate. I have Kate. We lost Laura. Yeah, Laura should should be calling back. Laura will call back. Hello, Kate Fisher. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Oh, I am so thrilled to have you. I've been getting frantic emails from from uh, Mitch and Tiffany this morning. Um, Changing. (laughs) Yeah. I am happy to have any of you because I just, you know, this was one of my must-see picks at LA Film Festival, the Her Story series, and I am just beyond thrilled that you have garnered an Emmy nomination. How does it feel to be the Emmy-nominated Kate Fisher? I know. It feels amazing. And, you know, it really is 
uh, you know, it's not just me. It's it's really the entire team in this, you know, position, like being the best best series. It's It really kind of speaks to towards all of the producers, all of the actors, the creators. Um, Sydney, of course, who unfortunately couldn't be on this call uh, today, our, our cinematographer, Baravino. I mean, this, this is such a group uh, award that it just kind of feels very validating in terms of, you know, having put the right team together and, and having the right kind of emphasis and um, ethos behind how we created it. So it feels, it feels great. It's amazing. And we're the only indie as well in our category. So that's, it's daunting, but it's exciting. That's, uh, and I, and Laura's on the line now too, aren't you? Are you there, Laura? Hi, yes. Thank hey, you for having me. Hey, congratulations Hi. to you too. Uh, I don't know if, if Sylvia or Mitch or anybody told you the minute that the Emmy nominations came out and I saw that you were nominated, I emailed them and I said, I have to have them on the show. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it was pretty amazing to see the immediate response. I mean, first of all, there's the surprise of even finding out that we were nominated, and then we hadn't even really let ourselves think that far ahead, so that then there was the like, I remember that day when we found out I didn't get out of my pajamas for like four hours because it was just interview after interview back to back. So it was all very surreal. I mean, it's just, I'm so thrilled for you guys because... This series, it's fabulous to watch your actors, the performances, but it goes to the story. And Laura, you as one of the, one of the writers co-writing with Jen Richards, where did the idea for her story come from? So it actually, the, the, um, the seed of the idea was born out of just a real-life chemistry and dynamic that Jen and I had when we first became friends. We actually met on the set of another web series that I wrote and started and co-produced called Hashtag. And we had cast Jen for a tiny cameo role where her character and my character uh, share a brief flirtation. And um, we actually hadn't been properly introduced yet until um, set and we were, we were shooting. And so the first interaction that Jen and I ever had was on camera flirting with each other before we had even said, hi, hello, I'm Laura. I'm Jen. <laughs> and um, after that, we struck up, a friendship and found that we had a lot of common interests and similar educational background, which you see play out in her story where they kind of geek out about, about the canon classics and Game of Thrones and all of these sort of nerdy aspects to the characters are very much based in our friendship. And so what happened is originally um, Jen came to me with the idea to pitch um, or the idea to write rather a spinoff of hashtag that explored a potential romantic relationship between our two characters. And then pretty quickly in the writing process, when we started to figure out the story, we realized we wanted the freedom to kind of go in an entirely new direction that didn't rely on sort of what had been established in a separate show. And then at that point, it felt like a natural, um, the natural third lead should be um, this character, Paige, who is the black trans woman on the show portrayed by Angelica Ross, because at the time, Jen and Angelica were roommates in Chicago, and, um, you know, so there was plenty of material as well about Angelica's life that, that, you know, inspired the character of Paige, and it just made sense for these to be the three perspectives carrying the show. So it was very much, you know, based on real relationships that we all were forging. Well, and it translates so beautifully on screen, and I have to say, Angelica's performance, she is a force to be reckoned with. Absolutely. And Jen Jen says often about how, you know, before all of this happened, 
she couldn't believe, you know, especially being roommates with Angelica, she she just felt like it was so clear that she was living with a star. And it was just a matter of time and what the vehicle was going to be to bring her to that level and to the forefront. And so it's been really one of the most satisfying aspects of the response that we've received to the show is to see how many other, you know, everyone on the team has had other opportunities, but Angelica in particular has really um, gotten a lot of other acting um, opportunities and just to see her go on The Daily Show and to see her really start to get that recognition has been amazing. Well, and the camera loves her. Absolutely. The yes. camera. It's funny, actually, as well, because when we were casting, like the, when we started the process, obviously Jen, Laura, and Angelica were the, they were always going to be the stars of it. Um, and I knew Jen, I knew Laura, but I had never met Angelica. And so when we were, she was like the biggest unknown going into it. So I must remember that like first day coming in being like, I don't know what we have here. Um, and then like the second, you know, we see her on camera just doing even tests, we're just like, oh, okay, we're good. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And that actually could only be there for the first chunk of shooting. So we, we did all of Angelica's scenes up top. And yeah, exactly. It was just, so the very first scene that we shot was the Angelica or the Paige and James first date scene where they're at dinner. And I just remember there was a lot of, you know, behind the camera sort of like tweetering about, or twittering, I don't even know what the word is, about like, about like, oh my God, I can't believe how good she looks on camera or can believe it. But um, especially combined with get a great, um, you know, hair and makeup team and also the wardrobe and everything coming together it was just and then of course the quality of bears um filming and yeah it was it was really no oh, and, and i'm glad you mentioned the costuming because your costume designer has dressed everybody in such defining out outfits but here again with angelica jewel tones on her the woman should only wear jewel tones <laughs> She, Absolutely. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, our our costume designer was incredible. Her name is Daria Derman. She's just phenomenal in terms of having that kind of bringing that the essence of the character to, um, you know, through the wardrobe, but in like a, a subtle way that really kind of brings it nuanced, but in this very kind of, I mean, you, you understand the character through what they're wearing. And, and that's, I think, that balance between kind of overdoing it you know, and, and not doing it quite enough. She just strikes that perfect balance. Um, I think with all the characters that just, we, we just left out, I think with all of our creative team. Well, how did you, when, when did you get involved in this process, Kate? Uh, so Laura and I have known each other for a long time. I think a decade now, we actually used to work together, um, at V-Day, which is a worldwide movement and balance against women and girls, uh, which is actually how we know Eve Ensler, who came on as our EP. Uh, so we've known each other for a long time. I moved to L.A. a couple of years ago from New York, and um, she and Jen were working on the script at that point. Uh, and I basically just tried to get myself involved somehow. Um, luckily, they, they let me come on board to produce. And then once we kind of made that decision, it moved fairly quickly. Um, I brought on a couple other amazing producers, uh, Sarah Baker, Julie Lopez, um, and just kind of the team kind of started uh, building from there with Sydney coming on board and then there and then, and then, you know, I think from the side, the, the moment we decided to kind of move forward until shooting was probably, I don't know, two months 
you know, between that. Uh, so we got a team together fairly quickly for really no budget. And, and one of the things that we really emphasized going into it was creating a team that represented and reflected the community um, in the stories that we were telling. Uh, so uh, we were able to kind of attract people within the LGBTQ communities um, in a way that I think, you know, had we not had a story, you know, written by and for our community, we wouldn't have been able to get the, these, these people involved. And, and we were, and I think it shows up in, the, in what's on screen. You know, it does. But what it also is, and it, this is a testament to you, Laura, and to Jan also, the story is relatable to the non-LGBTQ community as well. Yeah, thank you for saying that. And, and absolutely, I'm, I'm glad that's your takeaway because that was certainly what we were trying to accomplish. We were really just trying to tell a universal love story. Um, and, and some of the best feedback we've received after people have watched it is that by the final scene, they aren't even registering the gender identity or sexuality of the characters. They're just seeing them as human and rooting for, for them and, um, and excited to see them get together in the end. And, uh, that was one thing that Sydney spoke to about why she wanted to come on as director after reading the script is that she she said, um, you know, this was something I didn't even know that I wanted until she read it. Um, and one, one story we love to tell about Sydney's involvement is um, when we were originally looking for a director, we knew that we wanted a woman di- director, ideally, ideally a queer woman, um, if possible, and we sort of had our wish list and Sydney was at the top. We knew her from her great work on her um, feature, the Sundance feature. Um, I'm totally blanking on the name right now, Kate. Oh, oh the, the Drunk, drunk Town? Town Finest. Yes. <laughs> okay, Drunk Town Finest. And we knew that one of the leads of that, of that feature um, had been portrayed by um, a Native American trans woman. And so we, came, we brought Sydney in for her first meeting and she said she loved the script and then um, Jen mentioned something, uh, you know, said something about Janet Mock, and and, Je- uh, and Sydney said, "Oh, I know who Janet Mock is." And then Sydney kind of looked around at the table and said, "Wait a minute, how much do you all know about me?" And we were like, "Well, we know about your great resume and about this film that you made that we all watched and loved." And then she paused and said, "Well, I'm I'm also a trans woman," and our jaws hit the floor because we we you know of course that had been our dream of if we could have, you know, had a trans woman director, we wanted that, but we didn't know that Sydney was trans. We reached out to her. We just reached out to her based on her skill and her talent. And so we, we sort of had found the perfect person being driven by that desire to find, you know, the best person and ended up all working out exactly as it should. And, and I think that's, that's one of the keys here is that you went for the best person for each job. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. That, and, yeah and, and our emphasis, I mean, we, again, we did want to emphasize, you know, hiring people within the LGBTQ community, but also in that, in doing so, proving that you can hold both at the same time. You mm-hmm. can get the best person, and that person can be a part of this community. They can be female identified. They can be a person of color. That, that by hiring any one of those people, you're not sacrificing anything. They're all out there. They're all a part of this film industry. You just have to, you know, look. Yeah, and, and you know, I mean, I applaud you for that and, you know, for the level of excellence that, you know, so many times when people start talking diversity or hiring within certain communities, they're settling 
or it's to make a quota. No, you went for the best, and the best is there if you just look. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. and I have, I have to say to you, Allie, your, uh, to, to you, Laura, your character of Allie, everybody wants to be her best friend. One of the most <laughs> engaging, adorable performances that I have seen in many months. Oh, thank you so much. And well, also just it, Laura, too. Everybody wants to be Laura's best friend as well. <laughs> not that not to downplay her acting. Her acting is amazing. But they also in real life. I, it, That's one of those compliments that you aren't sure if you should take or not. It's like you're either saying I'm good at acting or I'm likable. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's both. It's both. Cool. It transcends the camera. <laughs> did, you, did you know when you were writing that you would always write that the character Valley would always be for you? I did. I mean, I think because that core chemistry and that core friendship was based on the real friendship, it just felt pretty natural that I would be the one portraying her. I think especially because I was coming off of shooting another web series where I played a character that was loosely based on my own experiences myself. It was a familiar world for me already. Um, Jen, on the other hand, I think at first it wasn't given to her that she would portray this this role but we all were pretty adamant that, that no you absolutely are the one meant to um play violet and i think we because we had that pre-existing friendship we just had a level of comfort with each other on set where we could really be freed up to play a little bit and to banter and sydney really really built that space into the, the days as well to, to allow us, you know, after doing a few takes on book to kind of have a little bit of ad-libbing and the little, um, the nerdy, like, um, great books, uh, rant that, that Allie does in the second episode, Sydney had just kind of been like, okay, now do a bunch of like classics program, like feminist interpretation of classic program. Um, one act plays that Allie could be writing. And so we had a lot of fun just kind of like rambling through the nerdiest possible ideas we could. <laughs> so, so Kate, how, as a producer, how do you wrangle a group of people like this? Because they are all so creative, so effervescent, so spot on in their, in their skill set and talents. Is it, is it an embarrassment of riches for you? I mean, it is on one level. I think that there is some thought put into kind of creating the right team. Um, and if you do, and when you do, and even though it's hard and it's rare, when you do, um, you know, things like ego or, or, you know, trying to, you know, outdo one another kind of fall by the wayside just because everyone's moving towards that common goal together, contributing what they do. I mean, filmmaking in general is so collaborative. So when you find those people that both, are amazing at their jobs and what they do and contribute so much and are working towards that same goal and like each other, uh, you end up with this kind of feeling on set, you know, and even in post and, and now, you know, a year later where, you know, it does kind of create this very familial kind of feel, um, which is rare. And yeah, it is definitely, in this case, it was an embarrassment of riches. Um, and I think, again, that starts with, you know, what Laura and Jen created uh, and then kind of, you know, finding those pieces. Um, and, and that's, I, I, it's a tribute to everybody. I mean, everybody had to bring the right intention to this project. Otherwise, 
you know, it, it wouldn't be where it is. It wouldn't work as well. Um, and they did. And, and it's been exciting kind of not just to see, you know, how it worked on set and how it's worked in post, but also now, you know, now that the Emmys are coming up, you know, we haven't seen a lot of the people that we worked with on this for, you know, months. Uh, and, you know, everyone's working really hard and everyone's just trying to make a living in this town. Um, and we put the call out when we when we got the Emmy nomination to see who would want to come to the Emmys. They would have to buy their own tickets. Uh, but I thought maybe two or three people would do it. We have over 20 cast and crew, people down, you know, to, oh. you know, PAs and everything, actually spending the money to come together to celebrate this together. Uh, because of that dynamic that we were able to create. So it's pretty exciting. That's amazing. Now, the next question then becomes, will they let you buy that many tickets? <laughs> they'll let you buy as many as you want. <laughs> They're not cheap, but they'll let you buy them, yeah. Yeah, the, it, it seems like the payment went through. Last Friday, Kate was like, oh, geez, I just spent this much money <laughs> on the, the Emmy tickets. So it seems like it was successful. Yeah, oh. no, it, yeah, it, which is good. But I feel like, yeah, the Hershey crew is definitely taking over the Emmys. Win or lose, we're, we're going to be partying pretty hard. I, I'm, just, I'm just so excited for you guys to have seen this, you know, before people really had a chance to see it and to watch this unfold. I am thrilled for you. Thrilled for you guys to have this Emmy nomination. You know, how, you know, how exciting is it that the Academy... As finally, in the past few years, they're recognizing these short-form drama and comedy series, the web series, that started out some years ago as being stepchildren and now really are a showcase for the talented artisans out there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's amazing, and it's, I think it's a testament to all the incredible series that have come, you know, before us and, and that, you know, we're even up for nomination this year, whether they got it or not. What I think is is kind of sad is that we are the only independent in our category. So there's so much good content being made independently out there for short form, you know, comedy drama, but also doc as well that, um, you know, that doesn't have the big studio backing that, you know, literally every other show in our category did. Um, so the fact that we're the only one is kind of sad because, I mean, there were some incredible shows out there like, you know, the skinny for one that was you know amazing that 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 didn't get the nomination when when I thought you know personally I thought you know it should have so it's it's both exciting that we're in a time that this can happen and that this kind of content is being recognized in this big of a way um, but it's also kind of like I want to kind of use it as like a rallying cry to like you know other independent filmmakers to really you know try to take back the category mm-hmm. from you know all the networks that have kind of taken it it's interesting. You know, Kate, as a producer, what do you find some of the biggest challenges about producing a web series as opposed to a feature film or, you know, another long-form project? Um, I think money is the biggest challenge, honestly. Uh, You have to, and and asking, you know, people whose work you respect and whose skill level is, is so high to work for, for not a lot just because of the budgetary restrictions that you're under. Um, but having said that, there's also a lot of advantages to this kind of content because you do have a bit more freedom. You, you can kind of, depending on where you get your money and how you do that, you can kind of make what you want to make without the restrictions that kind of come along with um, working with a bigger company or a network or a bigger platform. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it goes, I mean, there's, there's advantages and then there's disadvantages, but I think the biggest challenge is, is trying to find that money to make it. So now where are we in, in the, in the season process now? We have season one and six episodes done. Do we have more coming in the process? Laura. You want to take that Laura. <laughs> <laughs> um, we absolutely have more story. We have a lot of more story to tell. Really what we shot in those six episodes was just scratching the surface of the stories for those individual characters and also for lots of other characters that we want to introduce to the, into their world. Um, right now we're in the process of pitching the show um, essentially to networks to looking to um, turn it into a full-length series. So that is our, our, our goal right now that we're focused on and in and, and meetings about. So um, we don't have any specific news about that right now, but that's definitely the intention is to continue making more of the show and um, hopefully for a long time into the future. Well, and you know everybody's going to wait until, you, until Kate walks up and picks up that lovely little Emmy Award. And then they're right. all, we're they're, all walking up. We're all walking okay, up. Okay. Well, we <laughs> then they're all going to beg you. They're going to beg you. You're going to be the, you're going to be part of a bidding war. That sounds great. This, this, this <laughs> yeah. Is, okay. Thank so, you. So now, for the average person out there, where can they go to watch her story? So it's, uh, it's live. Go, go, go ahead. Okay, it lives on in a couple. Well, really, just one location, but you can find it at herstoryshow.com, or you can just go onto YouTube and search her story or her story show, and all of the episodes that exist will pop up, including. Um, lots of behind-the-scenes footage as well. And for the end, do you guys know when does Emmy voting end? The 29th at 10 p.m. Okay, so so Emmy voters have plenty of time to, I'm sure that they've been given links or screeners or something so that they can see this. If not, they can go online too, and they can cast their vote for her story. Yep. As, as yeah, that? exactly. Just go to the Emmy site. You can log in when you're a member, and you can watch all the episodes on there, and then hopefully vote for us if you like it. No, not hopefully. They should. <laughs> Thank you. On so, many, yes. on so many levels, you know, this is a chance for everybody. People talk about, cha- you know, being champions for indie, for indie film, for indie work. You are the only indie choice in this category, and you are an excellent choice. Thank you Thank so much. You. <laughs> Ladies, thank you, yes, thank you so much for having oh. us. Oh, make right decision, do the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies, thank you so much, and good luck. Thank you, thank you, thank you so Thanks. much. Bye bye. Bye. And that was producer Kate, Emmy-nominated producer Kate Fisher, and co-writer, story creator, executive producer, and actress Laura Zach talking about their web series her story so for all you all you filmmakers out there doing web series you too have a shot for an emmy nomination so the best of luck to them we are going to take a short break and we'll be right back (laughs) 
Hey, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers for Rad. I'm here to remind you that drunk drivers are still a major killer of young adults in this country. So always choose a designated driver. And remember, music lives. You should, too. Getting born in the state of Mississippi. Papa was a copper and mama was a hippie. A public service message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, Rad, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. So... I'm a dog, and I just got adapted by this new human guy, and I'm starting to wonder how he got along without me. I mean, okay, something as simple as walking around the block. He's got this leash thing, and he puts me on one end and him on the other, and I'm just taking him around. I I think he's afraid of getting lost. Without that leash and me guiding him along, I don't think he'd find his way back home. But it's kind of cute. A person is the best thing to happen to a shelter pet. Be that person. Adopt. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. Time to tune in and log on with Behind the Lens. Join noted film critic Debbie Lynn Elias and a lineup of talented co-hosts and informed guests each week as she goes behind the lens and below the line. We'll take in-depth looks at films and filmmaking with the movers and shakers and -and up-and-comers of the industry, along with movie reviews, interviews, awards, festival coverage, specialty segments like Tech Talk and Classic Corner. Tune in to Behind the Lens every Monday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Adrenaline Radio. Hi, I'm James Lott Jr. Do you feel like you're working harder, not smarter? Have you ever wondered how others get things done? Are you ready to invite change in your life? I've heard the SOS, and I'm here to help. Join me, James Lott Jr., the host of the Super Organizer Show, every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, as my guest and I offer suggestions on how to run your life more efficiently. That's every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, the Super Organizer Show, here on AdrenalineRadio.com. Follow me on Twitter at the SOS underscore show. And welcome back to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Lynn Elias, creator, host, film critic, and to some of you all around pain in the butt, I'm not sure. Um, I am thrilled to have all of you listening with us. Um, you can follow us on on Twitter, B- BTL Radio Show. Uh, you can email us if you have any comments, requests, suggestions, btlradio at prodigy.net. I think that's our website. Our email, I think. Uh, <laughs> I know the Twitter is right, though. Or everybody can find me at com, along with interviews, reviews, videos, and all kinds of cool stuff. So let's get back to some ben, more Ben-Hur today and the physicality. You know, you just heard Toby, give, Toby Kebbell give a really in-depth description about training. You know, and something the Bears, uh, the Bears pointing out is that even though Jack Houston and Toby were, are both very good horsemen, they had never done chariot driving. You know, back in 59 when Charlton Heston did uh, William Wyler's Ben-Hur, he had already done two-horse chariot racing uh, in the Ten Commandments. Uh, but then he trained with Yakima Canute to learn how you do four-horse chariot training. And uh, he had one month of training. Um, Stephen Boyd, who played Masala, was given two weeks. In the process, he got sunburned. He wasn't properly trained. He was fatigued. Um, and I think it's safe to say he could never have done the uh, what Jack and Toby have done in this uh, incarnation of Ben-Hur. Um, and so much of that goes to the physical preparation. And for Jack, a lot of that also falls to galley scenes because as many of you who know the story of, ben, of Judah Ben-Hur, he 
did he was a slave in a galley ship. So what do you do when you need to lose a ton of weight to be a slave in a galley ship, but also then be beefed up so that you can handle the rigors of chariot racing? So take a listen to what Jack had to talk, say about his physical preparation. I was, we were in Rome. I lost 30 pounds to do the slave part of this wow. movie because, you know, in my eyes, I was like five years in the galley of a slave ship. You're not going to be rippling with muscles. What you're going to yeah. be is just pure muscle and bone, like literally, because you're rowing all day and you're eating very little. So I was training twice a day. I've never been stronger, but I've also never been scared. I went down to 156 pounds. Wow. Um, how, for how did it. you get down to that? You know, l l once again, I was. I had a lovely studio who really did understand that it's tough. And they gave me a wonderful chef in Rome who was there because they knew if you're in Rome, the land of the best food and drink in the world, <laughs> if I was uh, doing I might have a cheat day or two. Um, so I had uh, the most wonderful chef, Giuliano, who was just this gorgeous man. And he just was so, like, loved food and passionate about it. And all he had to do was cook me the most plain, boring crap. In the nice way, in his words, not mine, because I thought he did a fantastic job of it because he made what would have been plain boy and crap, actually rather nice. But he, I mean, the poor guy was just like desperate to feed me pasta, um, which he never got the opportunity to do until the very end, which was amazing. But um, it was a lot of training and um, very, but I've never been more clear, the clarity it gives you when you're sort of on this sort of like, when I say health kick, it was amazing. They had nutritionists, we were taking amazing sort of natural supplements that help your body ease off when you're dropping a lot of weight over a rather short period of time. You have to take very, very careful of your body because it can actually be dangerous. But we had, we were, I was so well taken care of. And um, it, what it does is it, every time you think you can't do something, which happened a lot because you'd wake up after sort of months of, you know, the slave ship and rowing every day and you, sometimes you'd be like, I'm feeling broken, like I literally can't do it. And then you go to work and you do it and it, taught me a lot about how resilient we are as human beings and how we are so much more capable than we give ourselves credit for because a lot of the times when you're given the opportunity to sort of say no or I can't do it thing like that it's almost like a way out and this was very much a, t a, a test a constant test which is what sort of what the character was going through so everything only complemented the other thing so I was really it put me in a very sort of emotional you know headspace it was it was kind of amazing well and hand in hand with that training uh team wonderful director timor he wanted things as authentic and as possible so when it came to those galley ships and jack had to be in there actually rowing to trip up the the actors and the stuntmen who were doing the rowing the the oars are actually operated with uh pneumatics and hydraulics so I asked Jack about that because that then impacts, that's another whole impact on the performance at that level. Hey, quickly, you mentioned the galleys, and I know that Timur had these rigged with pneumatics. Yeah. How did that, it's not like a lot of films where you would be rowing and everybody would be in tandem, but the pneumatics... You don't know when they're going to alter the tension or yeah they would or submit, yeah that. yeah they would and and I like hydraulics you managed with the with the oars and everything it was unbelievable and that was the great thing is it was actually kind of because if you in the book that Lou Wallace wrote he writes the 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 galley uh, you know when he's a slave all from Judah's point of view. Right 
which is true. It's not like what's going on outside because all he's aware of is what's happening inside the galley, you know what I mean? So it's a very, we said it's almost like a horror movie because this action's happening all around you. So it's much more about your senses, what you're hearing. And he's constantly looking through little things and hearing stuff. And that was what was so great is you didn't need anything more than all this sound and this movement and things coming. And it was it was rough in there. I mean, I'll tell you what, that many men in loincloths. In, uh, in, in, and they would stack us up because it was like, he, he you know, he, all the research was they would literally stack them on top of each other. So there was like three layers that would jump back up and down. Um, and you were in very close proximity. And I, oh, actually it, was, it was a funny story. I think the... the, the the first day I got in there, and I'd been like working out like crazy. I'd gone down to 100 pounds. I walk in, and they put me next to the most rippling muscle sort of human <laughs> being thing. And I was like, no, are you kidding? I can't be next to that guy. <laughs> so they went and found the loveliest stuntman, Steve, who was the complete opposite. Couldn't have been more pale and basty and skinny. And that was next to it. So I was like, that works. That's better. So it was, uh, it was, it was a better one. But it was, it was amazing. It was like the heat and the sweat and the grime and all the rest of it. It puts you. It was amazing. It was, uh, it was, uh, it was quite something. Everything was done very taken uh, with a lot of care for the realism of it, which helps us. You know, as an actor, you sort of as much as they can do to put you in that place, even if it's a rather brutal place. It helps. So. Looks like we are out of time for today. A heads up next week. It is going to be a classic film delight as I'm going to have Monica Henry, daughter of the legendary Paul Henry, with us live. Uh, she'll be calling in and Monica is going to talk about her father, his work and the documentary that she's working on that maybe all of you can help be a part of as well. And we will hear more from Jack Houston, who talked to me about the legacy of being Walter Houston's great-grandson, John Houston's grandson, and filming in the very and the very sound stages where his grandfather filmed the Bible. So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Mm-hmm.